the third window from the right two flights up by the third window from the right the third Hello and welcome to episode 12 of the Third Window Films podcast. My name is Ben and with me is... Adam from Third Window Films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this show is basically a celebration of all things Third Window Films from the perspective of the fan, being me, and the man himself, being Adam Terrell. Chambara time. <laughs> what was that? What's that? I love it. You've got a new catchphrase every month now. What's this one now? <laughs> Oh, we're talking about we got we got John on here. We're talking about chambara, so it's it's chambara time, isn't it? Chambara time, perfect. <laughs> well, yes. Yeah, so let's, let's not bury the lead here. We do. We have another very exciting guest this time around. Uh, we've been flush with guests recently. Actually, we've been really lucky. Uh, it's been a good year. Uh, but yes, this guest today is the senior lecturer and program leader for film studies at the University of Greenwich. He has published several journal articles and book chapters on East Asian cinema distribution and specifically on the home video formats themselves. He's also credited as co-editor on various books such as New Blood, Framing 21st Century Horror, Cult Media, Repackaged, Re-Released and Restored, and DVD, Blu-ray and Beyond, Navigating Formats and Platforms Within Media Consumption. Whew, I did that all in one go. Well done. <laughs> but yeah, no, most recently he's just published his first monograph titled The Paths of Zatoichi, The Global Influence of the Blind Swordsman. So without further ado, we have here Dr. Jonathan Root. Hello. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Hello, sir. You're so welcome. I'm, I'm jealous of that catchphrase, Shambara time. I should have used it to promote the book. Might have increased the sales for the publisher. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm jealous of, of uh, you, Mr. Doctor. You weren't a doctor when we first met. so uh, No, no, I was, on my way, I was on my way to becoming doctor. Yes, it's been so long since we last got to chat in person. Although I was, I was doctor when I met you and um, Uedesan. Um, for um, his screening of Love and Other Cults at Raindance. I saw you briefly then. Ah, that was, uh, yes, a bit uh, hectic. And uh, yes, yes, uh, I think you just wear a T-shirt saying doctor on it because I would if I, if I would. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, <laughs> that's a risky game. <laughs> they, they, give us, they give us business cards at the university. That's it. No T-shirts yet. I'll try campaigning uh, you know, for that. <laughs> red bubble. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, yeah, thank you so much for joining us. So we just call you John rather than Doctor. John's absolutely fine. Yeah, that's what most of my colleagues and uh, my students sometimes call me, although some of them are still, when they come to university, they're still kind of in the habit of uh, school um, and calling their teachers like Sir. Some think right. I'm Professor, but I'm not that far along yet. That's that's next up the, the rung on the ladder. Um, <laughs> but it's nice they think of me like that. But yes, John is absolutely fine. Dr. John, musician. (laughs) (laughs) Beautiful. Well, look, as you guys could just probably tell, um, Adam and John clearly go way back, (laughs) probably before even uh, Adam and I started talking. So um, I thought that's probably a good place to start, John. Whereabouts did you start with Third Window Films and and how did you come about with Adam? Um, Well, yeah, I met Adam, first of all, when I was coming to the end of my PhD, and that's how I became aware of his work through my PhD research. My initial idea after I did my master's at the University of East Anglia was I wanted to look into um, uh, the Tartan uh, releases a bit more. 
as it happened, uh, researching, you know, how Asian films were being packaged and brought to the UK and, uh, and other countries, because at that time, I think they were branching out to, to other countries in the US as well. And of course, that's, as I think you've mentioned before, and lots of other people have part of their downfall. Mm. Um, but when, uh, funnily enough, when I got to UEA, I was told, yeah, someone's just done their PhD research on that. There was a whole other PhD uh, thesis that I could refer to by a guy who's now based in South Korea and written a lot on South Korean uh, cinema and South Korean horror films called Dan Martin. And right. he's published a lot of research on Tartan Asia as well. Um, but from that, I, I got the idea, well, well, who else is doing this? And my case studies ended up being um sadly not joey's uh labeled uh terracotta but i have published on his research since thank you for mentioning new blood because the the chapter on there is all about um bloody muscle bodybuilder in hell which Oof. i wrote about and his very distinctive release and his, his campaign to get that out on vhs as well as dvd perfect um so i have written about him since but for my phd my case studies were for Digital Asia, which is no longer around, it was part of a bigger company called For Digital Media, which is still around now. And I've still got the the DVDs on the shelf. The uh, the gentleman who ran that label, I met, I met him uh, uh, as well, similar time to Adam, Andrew Kirkham. He's now in Japan uh, as well, as uh, as I think you both know. I know Adam knows that. Um <laughs> Um, so I've still got all his uh, DVDs, which Andrew Kirkham, which is impressed at because he doesn't have them anymore. Um, uh, so he, he was uh, he, he was one half of my thesis and the other half was Adam and all his releases at the time. Although I had to, as I was writing the thesis, I had to cut it off at some point. So I think I was looking at all the releases up to 2010. So the, the early portion of Adam's catalogue and mainly Amazing. focusing on the... Uh, the, those third window releases up to 2010 and I was looking at how these films were being packaged partially looking to how some of them at that time were still going into cinemas but when I was writing the thesis of course Adam started writing a lot about on social media and in his newsletters that he had to stop the cinema releases but mainly I was focusing on um, how he packaged them and promoted them online um, for the distribution and marketing in the UK. Incredible. And I guess so you probably found the same thing that I did when I reached out to Adam, that he was really approachable and helpful yeah. straight out the gate, right? Yeah, at the time I was really lucky. He was still based in London. Um, right. So I came down to Liverpool Street that day and managed to interview him um, because, uh, I mean, it was partially the fault of myself and, and how busy I was at the time. I could only do that towards the tail end of my PhD and didn't get the chance or permission because when you're doing university research, you have to get ethics approval and things like that. Sure. Um, I didn't get the chance to include a lot of that material in the thesis, but it was useful really talking to Adam and getting that background knowledge and confirming some of the things that I suspected with how this all happened. And, and later on, years later, I came back to Adam and we did it via email, if Adam remembers. And I did publish an article, um, which was an interview on, on how he'd moved from becoming a distributor to a producer for Low Life Love. Right. Um, so yeah, I got to uh, I got to publish some interview with, material with him years later, but not uh, initially after first of all that we met. But that was really helpful for me. And then I, I'm struggling to remember now if it was before or after I met up with Adam that I managed to meet up with Andrew Kirkham and his wife Kazumi before they moved to Japan because they were they were based. Funnily enough, uh, I'm I'm based in Norwich now um, in Norfolk, and they were just based just over the border in Suffolk as it happened at the time. So right. meeting up with them was quite easy just before they, they moved to Japan. So I got to chat to them too. Well, actually, Andrew is um, is the person who authors all of my Blu-rays and DVDs to this day. Yeah. 
So he's still quite a big part of uh, Third Window Films. Obviously, his name is not well, obvious. Uh, his name is unfortunately not mentioned as much, um, but he's really uh, does a lot of work always with me. And um, I think he also, be, be him now being based in Japan, he does a lot of the interviews that, that, that he was doing for the discs when I think I was either not in Japan or not available for a lot, for a lot of directors. And he still does, for I think, for like um, Arrow releases, yeah. like a lot of the Tsukamoto interviews that are used on the Arrow releases, uh, not the ones for mine, but um, the ones for the Arrow releases were, were filmed by Andrew. And uh, he does a lot of filming of, of interviews with directors as well as uh, subtitling and, and bonus features. So he's quite active. Um, you know, uh, Ford Digital was not his company, but he was he was uh, uh, acquiring for them. And uh, yeah. I think he has his own personal taste. I think it was more of a job for him because uh, <laughs> the, the, Ford Digital were, were a thing more of like, uh, I mean, I think we've talked in the past about like uh, Fukusaku Kenta, like the son of Fukusaku Kenji, when we were talking about how he's made a bunch of shit films. Those were all like Ford Digital <laughs> releases. So <laughs> I think they were more yeah. focusing on like, uh, you know, sales, obviously, which is which yeah. is how usually businesses run, not not my like third window, which is a bit shit in in sales. Oh, God. <laughs> That's a new record, I think, for how quickly Adam can go on a downer. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm just well, just well, just trying to say. <laughs> it's good. It's good to know that Andrew is still involved because I've I've been listening to the podcast regularly. As I was saying to Ben just before we start got a recording, um, I'm really jealous that he got the idea first, and that I, that I didn't. I don't. I still don't have the technical know how to this day, but I've loved to have come up with the idea um, earlier on. Um, but I know in re- most recent episodes, Adam's been saying he's done a lot of this, this stuff himself. So I did wonder how much Andrew was still involved. I've still seen his name credited, like at the end of like subtitle credits and some of the special features credits on your releases and the Arrow releases. Um, but I did wonder, it's good to know he's still a big part of the, the company and what you do. Yeah, for mainly for the Blu-ray authoring, uh, especially. I think most of the bonus features nowadays I do myself to cut as many costs as I as I can. So it's probably yeah. why they've dropped in quality over the years. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yes, he still does all the uh, the all the Blu-ray authoring. So um, yeah, and DB and DCB mastering and stuff. So he's he's very technical and uh, he's got a very very fast computer. Excellent. So it's interesting what you say there, John, because I I'm I'm jealous of you and what you do because. So from my perspective, all I, I was just a fan that was reaching out to Adam talking about his films. Mm. And because I had a bit of experience uh, doing a podcast previously, um, I just asked him the question, have you ever thought about it? And that was all it took. He was like, I'd love to. I just don't know how to. And I was like, well, I know how to. And he was like, that's it. Let's go. Um, but one of the things that Adam always says to me, that one of the hardest things he's found um, in modern digital marketing is getting people to write about these releases. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of the big uh, tentpole critics here in the UK, like, you know, Mark Kermode and, you know, all the radio uh, ones, they won't touch it because it's not getting a cinematic release or it's not big enough. Yeah. And obviously there's people like me that tweet about it and post about it all the time, but we're not doing substantial long form you know, write-ups. Mm. Um, and, and there's very few in the game that, that do it really well. And you're definitely one of them. Um, so, yeah, I just wondered, Adam, maybe from your perspective, you know, how important has John been to you growing over the last sort of decade or so? Well, it's interesting for, to, for me to read that sort of stuff because uh, I kind of do this without much thought uh, in the process <laughs> of, of anything, just sort of, well, let's let's do this and, and never really thinking too much uh, about how I really should be doing it. And then I think sometimes when I read John's, John's, he's, oh, I really should uh, 
you know, obviously he's he's taking a look at very different companies and different aspects of releases uh, across the board. And, and maybe I should do things that I'm professionally sometimes uh, uh, in that respect. Uh, I'm a bit too uh, scattergun, I think, in, in the way that I do these things, unfortunately. I mean, but that's just how you do it, right? And it wouldn't be third window if it was, <laughs> I love that. It wouldn't be third window if it was professional. <laughs> From what I've learned over the years, I mean, obviously my, my passion has been with Asian cinema for a good long while. I mean, I first had the idea for a Zatoichi book years ago, or I'll maybe come back to explaining that later or, or finding mm. out about Zatoichi years ago. Um, but over the years, especially over the last five or six years that I've been in higher education, you know, I've found out so many historical companies of other film uh, makers and film companies all over the world that haven't acted or behaved that dissimilarly to what Adam's just described. Some of their approaches have been scattergun. There's been documentaries about this. I don't know if either, either of you have heard of Canon Films. It was oh, yeah, of course. For the P-Man film. Yeah. It's famous stories like that and other notorious producers, you know, they're trying to do things on the cheapest uh, means possible. Sometimes they become infamous because of that. Sometimes they become famous and quite influential. So, um, Adam, your approach is not that much different to other film producers and distributors around the world. If you if you have an idea, you want to go with it, then do that. That's That seems to be what other filmmakers have done in the past from what I've learned. Well, I'll take a little... Uh... <laughs> I'll be yes, sir. Thank, thank you. I think that's a damn good point. I think we had a uh, Tom Mess on quite a while ago now, um, yeah. talking about Sukamoto, and uh, he was saying how you know the, there's a comparison to be made between Sukamoto and Adam because both of them do this themselves, and they just yeah. they have an idea and they just run with it, and yeah. So I love that. Um, let's go back to the book then, because yeah, so I've, I've been an East Asian cinema fan for most of my life as well, but only recently really dived into it, um, mm -hmm. you know, head first, so to speak. Um, but it all started for me with Takeshi Kitano when yeah. I saw Battle Royale and, um, I was going to say Solid Team, but it wasn't, it was Battle Royale and Hannah B in the same year in 2000 when I was 16. Mm -hmm. Um, and I know from reading, you know, a part of your book that you said uh, your first introduction to Zatoichi was through Kitano's. Yeah, it was not really a remake, is it? It's a reimagining or a version of it. Yeah, uh, most people. Yeah, most people call it a reboot, remake. It could be seen as another um, uh, kind of reimagined sequel because obviously mm -hmm. his character is still much much older. Um, lots of people. I do this a bit in the book as well. Have compared like the k careers of Kitano and Katsu. Mm -hmm. um and they've had kind of similar very prominent me media careers um but yeah yeah my first introduction to Zatoichi um was through Kitano's film um I was uh initially I started reading a lot of the promotion for this in Sight and Sound um right. at the time because I'd just started university at the University of Winchester and had access to their Sight and Sound uh, magazine archive, which was fascinating, going through, first of all. And then, uh, and then I realized I was wasting my time too much. I'm like, oh, I've actually got to get this writing done. <laughs> um, so it was, it was very distracting, first of all. But it was fascinating to read about um, Zatoichi and this new film coming out, which sounded fascinating. Um, and then reading about the history of this character. And I was already a, a little bit familiar with, with Kitano, kind of similar to yourself then. Um, I'd seen Battle Royale not at the cinema, um, so I think you're maybe slightly older than me, um, but not, uh, not much. I hadn't seen it in the cinema, but I do remember seeing it on TV. It was one of these films that was introduced by Mark Kermode. I think he was doing this on Channel 4 at the time. 
Mm-hmm. I remember seeing that on TV and and the other films that became, you know, uh, have become uh, kind of the pillars of looking back at the Tartan Asia era, things like, um, you know, Ring. And I um, can't remember if Audition was shown on TV. I know it's been shown on Film 4 a lot since. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it was that um, soon after I saw or, or Audition. Um, so I was familiar with, you know, those uh, those kind of almost, I could say, cliche titles that, you know, <laughs> gateways into getting into Asian media that way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I've just remembered a few years before that, I think I borrowed off a friend um, an Akira DVD they had. So that was another famous one. And I can see on Ben's wall a poster for Princess Mononoke. I remember a friend of mine oh. showing me that at an early age as well. And that's always been one of my favourite Ghibli films. Um, oh, mine too. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. I'm incredible. always torn between that and Nausicaa as my favourite. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, they're, they're, they're my faves. I mean, there's a, there's nothing wrong with the other Ghibli films. They're, they're big favourites. But, um, but yeah, after the release of Zatoichi, first of all, um, I was uh, I was trying to find excuses to write about this sort of film. Uh, the Zatoichi I did in the second year of my research, but uh, ultimately I became fascinated with Kitano. So by the time I got to the end of my undergraduate studies at Winchester, um, I not only met my partner, who I'm still with, Christina now, and is one of the reasons that we're based in Norwich, because her family's nearby, and I ended up doing my postgraduate studies at UEA. But by the end of my undergraduate studies, I also wrote my dissertation on Takeshi Kitano, which is fun. <laughs> Um, Fantastic. so yeah and uh, that was I had to self-teach um, uh, uh, become self-taught in a lot of Japanese cinema history because there was no Japanese cinema expert there at the time at Winchester oddly enough I don't know how it happened in their library they just happened to have a few Kitano DVDs on the shelf so that's how I got to see Violent Cop and Sonity and they were the few that they had and then I had to educate myself on there or getting books in as well as uh, a good few more dvds of course incredible and it's funny you know we're talking about kitano because every film we've mentioned so far are the ones that adam hasn't actually touched <laughs> so <laughs> the, the first three um violent cops solid team and i oh, know you did do hannah b didn't you sorry yeah um but yeah and there's obviously yeah, them all, yeah. as well yeah, yeah. <laughs> but adam i mean kitano has been such a huge part of your story as well right? Because you've released everything basically apart from Zatoichi since those first three. Yeah, I mean, I, I tried to release obviously the uh, Violent Cop and uh, Sonatini and Boiling Point, but um, BFI and their government funding obviously outbid me, uh, mm. you know, well, what can you do? But I, I'm, I'm just lucky that I was able to get in to the other six uh, at a time when I guess I think the rights had lapsed for long enough and maybe other companies weren't so interested in it. And I was able to pick them up, pick them up, and also thanks to uh, a few other 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 things. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, to be honest, actually, I I wasn't the big the big fan of Satoichi and everything from from there from from uh, Kitano. I never really uh, liked his uh, you know uh, glory to the filmmaker and that those uh, sort of uh, very experimental time of his and since an outrage and all that. I'm not a big fan either. So mm. I think Satoichi was a time that turned me off Kitano. Uh, conversely. <laughs> uh, it- I was going to bring that up, actually. So it's been quite divisive, I think, within the community. I don't know how you feel, John. I, I still love that film, mainly because I was obsessed with Katano at the time and still discovering him. Mm. Um, but also because I haven't seen that many of the other Satoichi films. So that's kind of my my whole um, uh, perspective on him. I know that the um, the films were all made very much pre digital effects and that film relies heavily on like digital blood and Mm -hmm. quite a few 
Yeah, I'd like say that. I'd say heavily to a bit. It's maybe not as extreme as in in my masters. I went back to Shambara and studying other Jedi Geki films that happen to be coming out in the UK. In my opinion, I don't think it's maybe as CGI heavy as the Azumi films, which I ended okay. up writing about in my master's thesis. I think they've got a bit more CGI blood going on, but also it's been a while since I watched them. There's a there's a healthy dose of you know a few buckets of blood in there, but there's a lot of CGI <laughs> as well. Um, it does kind of stand out now. That's one of the ways it's dated. I mean, next year it will be 20 years old, that film. Um, I wonder oh, yeah. if we'll see any anniversaries being marked. There's, um, there were, This is down to a tweet that I saw recently, but there are rumours and nothing confirmed yet that the Prince Charles m- Cinema in London may show some Zatoichi films next year, but that's not confirmed. Right, um, right. But I can say that because they did put that out on a tweet I saw about a month or so ago um so they might uh, might show some we'll have to see how that goes oh and before i forget to plug it as well though this might be a bit too late it depends when the podcast goes out uh this weekend i've actually Im- been invited up to manchester where they are screening as atawichi film they've got a season going uh, at the home venue in manchester um of uh japanese films from the 1970s and they've decided right. to put in their japanese uh, sorry, they've decided to put in their 1971's Zatoichi Beats the One-Armed Swordsman, where he meets Jimmy right. Wang Yu's famous character. Um, and there's certainly well, actually Gushing Prayer in there as well, so they've yes. got the Zatoichi and the Pink uh, films. Yes. I think it's quite a, 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 a strange selection, uh, an interesting selection, of course, uh, but... Uh, yeah, some pink and then some Zatoichi. So uh. yeah, I might I might ask the home staff and and Andy Willis also what their their logic why they did pick those films if you're if you're interested on the reasoning behind that selection, Adam. Because yeah, Andy should be there too. And Andy, as um uh, as Ben probably knows from reading out all those titles earlier. Thank you, Ben. Um, <laughs> knows that Andy Willis was my co-editor on some of those books. So I've I've known Andy for a good few years now in higher education. He's a he's a big Asian film enthusiast. More uh so from the the Hong Kong Chinese end of things. He's that's where his major passion is. Amazing. Yeah, we haven't touched the pink films yet, have we, Adam, so to speak. <laughs> No, I think uh, we'll leave that for, for later, to be honest. <laughs> try and, I'd say try and invite on Jasper to uh, Jasper oh, Sharp sure. to talk about those. Yeah, because he's, he's definitely really knowledgeable. And he can tell you about the links. You know, some of this I briefly touched on in the Zatoichi book. You know, they're, they're important. They're sometimes embarrassing to talk about, I grant you. But they're mm-hmm. important to talk about because they were like an independent, low-budget jumping board for so much talent that came later in terms of filmmakers and, and stars as well in the Japanese system. So, so yeah, no, I'd say, yeah. Uh, comparing them, I prefer, like, um, you know, compared to the Zatoichi films, when it talks, when you've got, like, Sha- uh, Katsushintaro doing, like, the Hanzo films, that was oh, always yeah. my, my, my favourite mix of, like, the pink and seedy and dirty style yeah. of uh, that era you know, because the Zatoichi films, I was never that. I watched all of them, or as many as as I as I could when I was a teenager. But um, you know, I think the lack of blood actually and the lack of uh, mm. a- energy. I I don't want to say maybe compared to like you know the the mm. the, the, the the um film the films like Hanzo or the um the Wicked Priest um yeah. or the the Lone Wolf and Cub series, which were a lot more uh, wild and yeah. uh, and I. I think because it was, you know, a very similar, if you're looking at it from Western, you know, like Japanese samurai films or with the same cast uh, or with either Shintaro yeah. or, or uh, Wakayama, it's, um, it's like, you know, you could, you barely think they're in, they should go in the same, in the same spectrum because the, the, compared to the, the Zatoichi films, it was just 
completely wild and completely over the top uh, once you got into the early 70s. Yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah, you've raised some interesting points there. And it's interesting that you compare and and say you enjoyed more the Lone Wolf and Cub films and the Hanzo the Razor films. They were still the responsibility of, of Shintaro Katsu. Um, he, he became largely the producer of those films, both the Hanzo the Razor films and the Lone Wolf and Cub films later on. And of course, in Lone Wolf and Cub, the, the series of films we're most familiar with in the West, because I know it has uh, there's differing opinions of it in Japan. Um, I've heard from Tom Mez that some of the TV series adaptations that they did of that story seem to be more remembered than the films. But obviously, they, they had a massive impact in the West because of Shogun Assassin. Um, so we're most familiar with Ogami Ito being played by Thomas Oburo Wakayama, who's uh, Katsu's brother. So um katsu's hugely involved and this is this is one of the th- many things that they're riffing on i think in uh, as they've confirmed uh, the filmmakers of top not detective which we can come back to chatting later <laughs> it's interesting you mentioned that contrast because the zatoichi series did try to get as outlandish as those films later on in fact they're all being made at the same time katsu's still making uh the zatoichi films in the early 70s then he's he's trying to kickstart hanzo the razor and um, the Lone Wolf and Cub films keep them going as well, all the, the 1970s. And one of the odd parallels that I, I, I mentioned, I don't think I mentioned in the book, but I realised an odd parallel with some previous film history classes that I've taught then, is that there's almost a similar thing happening in British cinemas. You know, are these, these filmmakers at this time, both Shintaro Katsu and Toho, who's paying him to release those films, curiously enough, later on, they're the distributor for the later Zatoichi films, um, uh, Lone Wolf and Cub and the Hanzo the Razor films, which always surprises me because they're bringing in more, as Adam said, more of the Pinku elements, more of the sleazy elements. But Toho is like helping them uh, get out to the cinema. Um, hmm. So they're, they're, they're getting high on like the sex and violence content. And from what I, uh, a few classes I've been asked to teach in the past on British cinema, um, British cinema, oddly enough, was going through a similar thing in the 70s, trying to get more sex on screen to get bums on seats in the cinema. That's why you have, you know, carry on films getting more sleazy as they went along. And um, things like the Confession series started up, which I think started with Confessions of a Taxi Driver, I think, and then and then other films in that series as they went along. Well, America, oh. American cinema too, with like shampoo and all those yeah. like uh, easy. Ride. I mean, it's just the seventies was that sort of era, you know. And it was, any, it really was. you know, <laughs> the late sixties, early seventies were that era, and and yeah. any major company needs money and wants money, and therefore they they make what the audience wants, and if the audience wants a, a little bit of uh, confessions or a little bit of uh, you know window cleaners and all that, then uh, then that's what happens. Yeah, exactly. And it, uh, but you're right also that before that, there is a contrast with the Zatoichi films. Um, I think um, going back to a point mentioned um, earlier, I think that Ben said, you know, I've still got a lot of fondness for the Takeshi Kitano's Zatoichi film because it's the first one I saw. And also after watching them all um, in quick succession and somehow I still don't know how I managed it to this day as well. I watched all the TV episodes he did the Zatoichi, which was 100. Um uh, I have to say, Kitano's one is one of the best ones, really, <laughs> in terms of Zatoichi films made. And in the ones that K- Katsu were making around the 60s and 70s when Dae was still involved, before Dae went bankrupt, there were a mix. Some were more violent than others. Most of the time, they seemed to be going for the family-friendly, kind of more general audience, so that they could, they, these could appeal to anyone coming into the cinema. But sometimes they tried to make them more sleazy and violent, um, sometimes they veered away from that. So they re- there, there really was an interesting variety. And 
And, um, you know, depending on who they were going for, sometimes that meant for a higher quality film. There's still some from the 60s that I think are quite good and, and worth watching. Um, others, maybe not so much. You know, sorry, I was just I was just sitting back and listening to you to vibe. Then <laughs> wasn't really saying much. One thing I was thinking, though, is kind of like uh, as a comparison to what you're saying there was I watched um, an anime the other day. I know Adam's not big on anime, but it was uh, Yasuomi Yumetsu's Kite. Yeah, from the late bit, 90s. Yeah. Uh, and basically, the reason I, I looked into it was because it was he, he was key animator on things like Akira and Grave of the Fireflies and stuff like that. But this was supposed to be a really sleazy kind of uh, riff on Leon the Professional or La Femme Nikita. And I watched it, and I loved every minute of it, except there was some really horribly graphic sex sequences yeah. with young girls, which I was just like, Oh my god! It was it just felt awful, and I, I hated seeing those scenes. And I did a bit of research into it afterwards, and apparently the only reason those scenes were in there was because of pressure from the production companies who were funding yeah. the films, and they were saying that's what's going to sell these things, so you have to put it in. I just thought that was really interesting. It's like the, the one I, thing that's putting me off is the one thing they used to sell it. Yeah, I guess that that film or OVA, sorry, it's an OVA, isn't it? Yes. The tight one. Yeah, um, yeah. That I guess that was coming out not long after Uretsuki Doji, Legend of the Overfiend. <laughs> And, yeah, sure. you know, that was yeah. a big hit around the world, as well as uh, not only in Japan, I guess. And that was a boom for a short time. Almost everyone was trying to catch up and, and re, uh, re, recapture that kind of commercial success because there were, I've, I don't know how many, but I've, I've heard there were some over themed sequels and there were other ones like kites probably coming along saying they could sell them yeah, and that like was wicked kind of city a, as well and stuff like yeah, that right and that yeah. was kind of a similar ethos to you know that what the pink film productions were doing and then nikatsu later on you could do whatever you like as long as you put the sex scenes in so it sounds like <laughs> a similar a similar sort of thing i hate to say yeah and yurosuke doji uh, uh? yeah yurosuke doji <laughs> and both that and kite have uh, live action versions as well uh, oh do they uh, oh, oh, i didn't know there was that. Oh no! Yeah, the the kite dream one was actually I think it's I think Netflix or somebody. It sort of came and went very quickly because it was awful, but uh, or apparently awful. I didn't see it. Uh, Wasn't it South Africa? Like, no, I think was it? Someone told me the other day. I think this yeah. is a South African live action 2014 film. I thought the yeah, that's the one with Samuel yeah. L. Jackson in it, right? I, uh, yeah. Samuel Jackson. Yeah. Oh, yeah, is that South African? filmed largely in South Africa. So was the Dread movie from a few years ago. So it might have had some Hollywood companies involved in it, but I think it was filmed largely in South Africa. How the sweet giddy fuck could they do a live action Yuritsuki Doji though? Yeah, I've <laughs> never heard of that. Did that happen? I've seen it. I had it on DVD oh somewhere when I worked at like a, a video store in America that had like a, a massive <laughs> porn section in the background and uh, in, the back, in the back back uh, of the store. And uh and we had it, and and uh, it wasn't very good. I think it's just a pink <laughs> film, uh, but uh, yeah, it was a. I don't know if it was official, but it was uh, called the same name and had the same uh, penis monsters. <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh man, that's, that's weird. Um, it's just like uh, I. I was just thinking, have I ever seen anything like that, like live action done on screen? And oddly enough, um, does anyone else watch The Boys on Amazon Prime? I've only I saw a bit of the first season, but I haven't caught yeah. up. A few I, people I, told me to. I love watching that because I mean, um, Christine is not a fan of uh, my partner. She's not a big fan of horror or, or Asian cinema, um, but we both enjoy the Marvel films. And also, I've got right. students obsessed with Marvel films, and I love the boys because it's just it's just the flip side of like the superhero narrative. What if these people were absolute assholes? Yeah. Um, 
And the link to Uritsuki Doji is it got really bizarre in this recent season, which I think was the third one. There is a uh, a super powered human in there with a giant penis, and it does look like a tentacle from Overfiend. It's right. really odd. <laughs> so they, didn't go the, they didn't go the Doctor Manhattan route with just like this huge yeah. stumpy tree. No, it was not. <laughs> wow. No, uh, we're yeah, we're getting into bizarre ripples of Japanese popular culture. I thought I'd explored enough in the book, but you know, we're exploring everything else that Japan has influenced around the world. I didn't expect that today either, but I think it's great. <laughs> well, there's penis monsters and top, 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 not detective as well. So. Oh, of course there are. Yes. Love that film. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's a good way to go then. Cause I was going to say, obviously we want to talk a bit about the, the kind of, cause Zatoichi was so influential to the samurai genre in general. And yeah. Adam has released quite a few over the years. Um, I was going to go through them, but maybe top not detectives a good place to start because it, mm. I mean, you could probably explain it better, John, but it was kind of loosely based around um, the star of Satoichi, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm going to, when I, when I go up to Manchester in a, in a few days time, depending on when people listen to this podcast, you might be able to still find some information on their website. It will be on the so, 4th of September. My goal, will, we're, we're recording this on the 30th and my goal is to get out tomorrow on the 31st. <laughs> Well, so I'll keep my fingers crossed for you. Thank you um, very much. And it also, it also depends if anyone's near Manchester. I know it's uh, not all the listeners will be nearby, but you might be interested to read about what they're doing and the other films being shown. But one thing I'm going to mention there is from one of the um, special features, actually, on the Criterion box set of all the Zatoichi films, there's some footage from John Nathan's film um, that he made. Uh, when he basically followed uh, Shintaro Katsu around for a few weeks. This was when he was making the TV episodes, and it was all about not just how he was making the Zatoichi TV series, but also his wild shenanigans, basically, at night when he went out and partied afterwards. Um, <laughs> and some of that looks scarily familiar to what they take the mickey out of in Top Knot Detective. It's really interesting to see. Amazing. Do you think <laughs> yeah, that was just a right. happy coincidence or have they actually seen that footage and mimicked it? I, I think they've seen that uh, some of that footage and mimicked it. They talk about in the commentary about seeing some of the press conference interviews that Katsu gave back when he was at the height of his stardom in the in the 70s, where he'd often have to uh, apologise for being caught with drugs or if he get found out womanizing, he still up until his death, he was still married to his wife. But it, uh, apparently, there were all these news reports about being found in bed with a different woman. It was the seventies, you know. What can you do? Same in same in Japan and same uh, in, in most other places. So, yeah, hundred percent. I mean, for for anyone who doesn't know what we're talking about, so this was a um, mockumentary from Australia, directed in 2017 by two lads called Aaron McCann and Dominic Pierce. Um, and yeah, so it's it, it's a fake documentary about the greatest samurai show you've never heard of. Um, and yeah, it's about this this crazy production and the the kind of stars behind it. And yeah. Um, Jonathan has frozen, I think. So, uh, Adam, if you want to talk a bit about how you came across Top Knot Detective and, uh, yeah, released it. Yeah, I um, I was in Sitges, the film festival, uh, which is one of the best genre film festivals out there and in uh, in Spain. And uh, a very, very fun film festival with a lot of uh, great guests and a lot of great films. And, uh, yeah, I saw it there and immediately... Um, met the guys after both of them, both uh, Dom and Aaron were there, and as well as the producer of the film. And I was like, "Yeah, this is this is obviously great because it's." I think anybody who was into Asian cinema of a certain age sort of feel very connected to that movie because it's it's all about um, 
uh, it's all about sort of fandom of we the, the weird and, and wild Japanese like uh, uh, pop culture of the seventies, mm. eighties, and nineties, and so. And you know, even to the point we've got Guitar Wolf and all that in it because of Wild Zero. So, you know, it's uh, it's was a wild film, and I, yeah, I immediately spoke to them afterwards and said, "Let me help, let me distribute this." And uh, and they had just done so much work on not just the, the the film itself, but also the promotion of the film. They made like a sort of spin-off soundtrack to it, T-shirts and uh, wild loads of wild um, uh, posters and all. So it was a very very easy film to distribute and a very fun film and unfortunately a film that not as many people have seen that should have seen uh, have seen it so it's uh, it's still sort of a bit under the radar but everybody like like yourself who uh, I think you saw it um a couple of weeks ago so didn't you and uh, yeah 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 so I, I I just it's one of those ones that you sent me um and I never got around to actually um watching listening in so uh yeah, I revisited it. Absolutely loved it. I tweeted it and I tagged in the guys actually. And uh, Aaron was like talking about it, saying, "I'm so glad people are still finding our weird little film." And yeah, it's just such. A, I think it's going to be a timeless one because it's uh, a documentary around a certain period. Anyway, it's not going to date outdate itself, and it doesn't rely on you know uh, digital effects or anything. I think it's just going to go on and on. So it's it's a really easy recommend for me. Are you a fan of it, John? Oh, top knot. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, oh yeah, it's brilliant. I also love the, um, I think it's on the disc as well, and you can find it on YouTube, their proof of concept trailer, because I think it was not long before I saw Top Knot, a colleague of mine at Greenwich introduced me to Darth, uh, sorry, introduced me to Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, which yes, they use yeah, yeah. clips of in the proof of uh, concept trailer to kind of give it that mockumentary uh, feel, and I think it's brilliant, and I could see exactly where, when I saw Top Knot Detective, I'm like, they've maintained that Dark Place kind of vibe and it works so well, especially for people like us that grew up on watching those films um, at a younger age. I did. I, I loved it to death. And I, I did think at the end, I was like, I would just lap up more films like that of different genres, you know? Yeah. Uh, I don't know how much, it must take so much effort to go into it because it's really <laughs> lovingly recreated a lot of this stuff. And I guess if you're creating these sets and these costumes and these things for a full TV series, that's one thing. But if you're doing it just for a small mockumentary of like to make it look real, that's, that's another, that's amazing. I love one story that they, uh, to make all the effects, instead of doing it digitally, they actually like film stuff and then put it out on VHS. And then, like, copied that VHS like over and over and over again to degrade the quality, <laughs> wow. so it looked old. So, like, just the time put into that. I mean, it's not like you know you have to wait till the VHS finishes playing. So they have to do it over and over and over again to uh, give that feel of the same feel that I think a lot of us of the same of the same generation who got into Asian cinema had to watch videos in that quality as well. Because when I first was trying to find out, obviously Zatoichi was like that Janus films. So it's quite good quality VHS. But, but whenever you're trying to watch like um, a lot of the, the Wicked Priest or that sort of like quite minor Chambery films of the time, mm. it was like third, fourth, fifth generation VHS uh, that we could watch it on. And uh, yeah, I think they really, they really portrayed that. So actually even I wonder if a young person watches that film, I wonder if they understand it as much as if, if you're not of that generation, to be honest. I think it's a fun film nonetheless, but I think that if you are of a certain generation, it is a lot more fun and a lot more endearing. 100%. Um, I think we will 
uh, well, I'll definitely put a link in the description of how you can get hold of this, maybe through Terracotta Distribution. But Adam, I don't know, maybe we could give away these these films we're talking about as a competition this month, maybe. Um, for sure. Top Not Detective for sure. And uh, I'm sure I'll find some other uh, of of uh, the, the third window Jidoiki films like uh, Uzumasa Limelight is one that I think uh, is another great film that nobody has really seen. And uh, anybody who likes samurai films or Japanese films or films about anything should... Uh, should love that film. I love it. Now, that's exactly where I was going to go next. So we've been doing this too long, mate. We're like thinking alike now. Um, can you help me? I don't know how to pronounce the, the director's name. Is it Ken Ochiai? Ochiai? Ochiai again, yes. Ochiai is his surname and Ken is his first. Uh, but he's quite, I don't know how he's been living in America for a very long time. So he's, he's uh, quite set up there. Um, I don't know how long he lived in Japan before, but he's, um, his English is very, he's very good. And he's, uh, he's making a lot of stuff out there. It's, I, I loved that film as well for very different reasons, obviously to, um, top Knot detective, but it's like this really sweet and touching look at the samurai film industry in Japan, uh, from the perspective of one of the kind of unsung greats who's being aged out. And, uh, you know, the, the, all the young up and comers are, are getting popular and he's, he's becoming less and less in the limelight. Um, yeah, I just thought it was really interesting as well as obviously really entertaining. Um, and as you said, it's got this central performance from is it Seizo Fukumoto, who um yeah. he he was like a huge name in the industry. So he's kind of playing himself in a sense. Um and the film itself is kind of like as much a like kind of tribute to his contribution to the genre itself as it is as as it is to him. Yeah, I just loved it. Yeah, it's a proper love letter to cinema and uh, and samurai cinema and how I mean, I guess you know, looking at, at Jonathan's books as well, like the way that that uh, it has changed over the years, and even just you know, if you were looking at the the new Zatoichi and the original Zatoichi and all those different ways of adding digital effects into it, and how the digital aspects of, of cinema has changed, it, it, it the, the art of dying has changed even. Uh, <laughs> now. So it's 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 a it's a really be- beautiful film and it's an entertaining film it's it's a film that i think i honestly think it's a type of film that if it was on like channel four or something like or if it was in a mainstream audience with people that don't really watch that much japanese cinema would really love it more than more than probably uh people who are into like hardcore japanese cinema it's just such a more a beautiful film actually yeah, think, hardcore cinema i think you'd like it as well i think most people would love it true but no, i think you're absolutely right i think like if you discovered this randomly it would really uh, touch your heart, you know, it'll grab you in a way you weren't expecting. Um, was that an easy one for you as well? Did you see it and go, yeah, I want to get this one and release it myself? Yeah, that, that film had a lot of problems actually in terms of the, the distribution of it. Uh, the production company was an American company along with uh, the directors living in America. And uh, there was like a big problem with the guy apparently who wrote it and, and the uh, production company and some big lawsuits and all that. And, uh, uh, like when I first started to read, I got all these emails saying like I'm going to sue you, uh, which I had nothing to do with it. Uh, I was just a distributor, and this uh, the, the the writer of the script or the story had had somehow gotten in and been had some problems with with them and was was threatening me legal action. So it actually caused uh, the initial release to uh, to have problems. But it was supposed to, I think, it might have played did it play in cinemas in the UK or I remember making posters for it. Uh, so I guess. Either it played in cinemas or it played as part of the Japan Foundation Touring Film Festival, but uh, it had some problems because of that guy. He got the writings even to the cinemas, right? Uh, um, 
saying like this guy's uh, this distributor is not not legally got the rights to this film. So um, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a problematic release that uh, yeah I think um, is still undiscovered and and uh, I'm sure John John really likes Uzma uh, Limelight uh, as well. Yeah, so I think like uh, that's the third or fourth time you've mentioned on this podcast that there's been like legal action taken against one of the films that you're trying to release, which is uh, just, sad. Wrong sad place, wrong time. But yeah, so yeah, Uzumasa Limelight by Ken Ochiai is yeah well worth seeking out. And again, hopefully we'll be able to find a copy to, to put out for this. But yeah, John, what do you think about that one? Oh, I absolutely love that film. That's That's one of my favorites from the whole Third Window catalogue. Um, if I'm on it, Lo- loved it the first time I I saw it. Um, I'm trying to remember when it was first uh, released by um, Third Window. I think it was not long after I'd finished my thesis, mm. um, but it's always stuck with me. And um, I was really glad recently when we were nailing down the date for recording the podcast, I had the time to go back and rewatch it because it had been a while. Um, but yeah, ab- absolutely love that one. I also had time this week and I hadn't seen this before to watch the Charlie Chaplin film that it loosely uh, remakes as well, his film oh. Limelight, which is fantastic. And if anyone is a big, I'm sure we've got lots of cinephiles who, who, who listen to this podcast. Um, I didn't, I also found out, um, after watching that film, that it was the first and only time apparently that Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton were on screen together in that film. Oh, hey. So yeah, and it's a, it's a, it's a very different story that plays out, but there's that similar kind of plots and themes of uh, you know the older actor introducing the the younger actress mm-hmm. to the world and kind of helping uh, helping her get started in her career. Um, in the Charlie Chaplin film, there's more of a, a romantic uh, l- uh, link between those characters as well, which is a little bit odd seeing that now, but it, it still kind of works. It's it's not a bad film, I don't think, for that. Um, but yeah, obviously that plays out differently in Uzuma's Alarm Light and I think plays out really well. Um, I was I was interested to look in the director and see what other films that he's done and it doesn't seem like they're highly appreciated films, but at mm. least he's got this one that I think is a is um, is amazing. I, I really do enjoy that Uzuma's Alarm Light. So that, uh, even though um, uh, I was just hearing there's there's problems that Adam said uh, sadly involving that release I'm I'm really glad that it's out there because I think it's a great film 100% I mean have you got any experience with the work of Seizo Fukumoto as well the, the lead actor in it uh, oh yeah uh, I was looking into I think I may have seen some films that he's been in but obviously not um, not been aware it was him until um, you know, he's, he's so prominent in Uzumasa Limelight. You look back his filmography, he's done so much. Again, kind of one of these bit part actors. But it's interesting that um, Jidai Geki films and Shambara films are such a big part of that film's narrative. But you look back through his filmography, I thought it was quite interesting that he'd been in a lot of Yakuza films and Kinji Fukusaka films, and that's where he'd been killed off, right. which was interesting because in a scene in Uzumasa Limelight, there's a joke of, oh, he has to pretend he's dying not in a Shambara film, but in a Yakuza film. But <laughs> The joke is, it seems to be, that's what he's most known for. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, I'd completely forgotten about that scene. I need to revisit that film, if I'm honest, because everything you're saying is just making me yeah, remember how much fun I had with it the first time. And kind of what Adam said, you know, it's definitely a film for cinephiles, but also it's just, just entertaining. It's just a really well-structured yeah. and well-written film. Yeah, I think I watched it. Um, not long after I did my um, MA thesis on Shambara films, I looked at the 
Um, the kind of of kind of, but not. I could go into that in a bit more detail if you want. The female reboot of Zatoichi Ichi from two thousand eight, and it. I was comparing that with the Izumi films, and also a low budget, really low budget one, but kind of fun film that came out in the UK called Geisha Assassin. Um, and especially with the Izumi films, I could see some of the parallels with what they were taking the mickey out of in Uzumasa Limelight, like getting the big pop star in as the lead and that sort of thing. And I could see that happening at, uh, I was aware of that happening at that exact same time in the Japanese film industry. That's how they seem to keep Shambara going, you know, get a big star from elsewhere in as the lead mm-hmm. to, to make it popular and get the audience in. I think they did that for the Hidden Fortress remake as well. Oh, nice. um, they got big, big pop stars and TV stars and idols of the time in to try and, you know, get an audience into the cinema. That's how it is, uh, Japanese uh, uh, film committee system now, Seisaku Inkai, you know, yeah. and, and those Azumi films were actually Mata-san, Matahiro, uh, who's one of the big, like, he's almost like a sort of Hollywood-type producer in, in Japan. He produced, actually, he started off producing films like uh, Mishima and The Man Who Stole the Sun. But those films bombed, and he started becoming this sort of, like, just making genre, genre films with always getting the big name idol stars to, as mm. a way, just, you know, sort of setting it on paper, in essence. And uh, I I remember liking the Azumi films quite quite a lot, uh, but uh, it's been a long time since I've rewatched them, so I don't remember. I think Azumi 2 wasn't very good, but I like the first one, if I remember. But the producer is a proper, uh, like, um, Kadokawa Haruki type uh, person of, of this generation, so he's... he's <laughs> Yeah, he, he, he did. A, so he actually did a Sonos film, uh, Shinjuku Swan, as well. But um, uh, yeah, Azumi is that. That was that. That's how it is nowadays in Japan. Anyway, it's just it's a big name idol, and then uh, get a, ma- a a shit song to match up with it, yeah. and, uh, and you know, all making films on paper. Only realised until a few years ago that. Um... Yeah, uh, I only realised a few years ago that Jackie Chan's kind of notorious for doing that too. I didn't realise how much he sung the theme tune for his films and stuff like that. <laughs> I'm just going through the check discs for the Obayashi um, Kodaka 80s, you know, box set. And um, I recently just watched the, the the Girl Who Leapt Through Time. And that's all the same thing. I've, I've, I've completely blanked on the girl's name. Um, but Harada, Harada Tomio. Thank you. Uh, yeah, she it was her. She was an idol. That was her first film, and she does that hilarious song, and it's got the music video and everything, and yeah, the whole shebang. And that, that's the if I, if I remember right, you've just reminded me. That's the kind of thing that they're poking fun at in um, another third window release, the Takashi Miike film for Love's Sake. They kind of poke uh, make fun of you know all these high school films with idols as the as the leads that sort of thing unless that's just recreating that from a previous year rather than poking fun I, th- I thought it was kind of a humorous homage when I saw it that's an interesting point well, for love's sake was a remake itself so uh, so uh, maybe ah, yes I'd forgotten that yeah because <laughs> Mike's making idol films now isn't he basically <laughs> so uh, it's, it's, it's a studio circle. director you know okay what well, he's not making V Center anymore, you know. It's uh, when mm. you make a studio film, the studio decides who, what, what idols who should should be in the film, and uh, yeah, unfortunately, that's how it goes. Sometimes you have a really good director who can work around that and make the film interesting, not with even with shit actors. And sometimes, uh, in most cases, you have shit directors who can't get around that, and that's why the films are crap. But uh, you know, Mike still surprisingly uh, makes films. I mean, actually, most of his films actually have been that good, but um, at least uh, original, entertaining enough to spite the cast. <laughs> I'm really excited for the third Mole Song film. <laughs> I love those ones. 
anyway. I've sadly not got to seeing those yet, but I did really enjoy First Love. That's a few years oh, old now of his. It's amazing. And and I heard uh I heard he went back to um oh what was it? Uh the Great Yokai War recently. Yes. I'm kind of kind of interested to see that because it wasn't that long ago I got the Arrow box set. Um but also I saw I was I was pleased to see that Ben had only just seen recently because I've got that Arrow Blu-ray as well, Deadly Outlaw Wrecker. Um, quite enjoy that one. Oh my and god! That I'm pleased. I'm pleased to say there's a there's a Mike link in the in the Zatoichi book. I got to mention the fact that Mike did a stage play version of Zatoichi with Sho Akawa as the lead. His <laughs> wow. his muse from D- Dead or Alive. That yeah, I didn't I didn't even realize that. I mean, I know he he likes to mess with theatre quite a bit, doesn't he, Mike? He's done a few. He, he, he's done it a few times. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, I mean, sorry, I, I can't let you just drop Deadly Outlaw Wrecker and we're just not going to just move on without touching on that because yeah, no, <laughs> it's it absolutely blew my mind. I don't know. I, 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 was, I just wasn't expecting it. I think a lot of this stuff I go into now, I'm like, this is going to be really cool. And then every now and then, like it happened with The Seventh Curse um, last month, I just was just watching a film casually, enjoying it, and then just all of a sudden realizing this might be the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. And I kind of, <laughs> I kind of had that with Wrecker last night. <laughs> um, yeah, just, just okay, and now you've got his his motorbike car island as well. So got, yeah. <laughs> exactly, and the, the school Ricky, in the crosshairs. Ricky debut. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. Anyway, well, there's another film that I wanted to mention, um, although it's not technically not a samurai film, but it is kind of that, that Edo era kind of uh, vibe is The Suffering of Ninko, um, hmm. which is a really weird film that I put in my review. I said it finally a film that sets out to answer the age old question, what would it be like to be a monk when you're irresistible to women? <laughs> That's kind of the whole premise of it. But it starts out like this really kind of... Um, kind of farcical sex comedy but it turns into this yeah. really weird and generally co- quite fucked up creepy ghost story i thought it was it was really spectacular have you i mean obviously you've both seen it but um yeah what, what are your thoughts on that one uh, again i enjoyed re- revisiting that recently because um sorry if i've mentioned it already i i i uh realized how few titles um there are but some really good ones in the third window catalog that kind of like jidai geki and mm. some have elements of shambara in them and this is one of them because there is the ronin character as well when they um uh, it, it, you're right it, it, even though it's so short this film it's not more it is just 70 minutes long i think mm-hmm. um they pack a lot in there and the story keeps changing throughout as you say starting off as farcical sex comedy then it almost becomes a quest to kill a monster and then it ends somewhere um that you weren't necessarily expecting um i really enjoyed revisiting that because i remember enjoying it the first time around and like i'm not sure if i remember all of this but um yeah i enjoyed watching it again yeah but also jidai arewa jidai on uh, on a budget on a no budget mm. i yeah. mean uh, it's almost impossible to uh, make a, a studio a, a, a period film a jidai film without a budget because obviously the sets and the and the, the clothing uh yeah. the costume is very expensive uh, to 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 do all that up and i mean the sets obviously there's lots of old places in japan but even so i mean it's uh it's not easy if you have no money to bring a whole cast there and set it up and uh and especially the costumes i think the director was saying he would just go to like like sort of not farmers markets but sort of like old uh old secondhand like markets and, and just buy like as many old clothes as he could an old kimono that he could uh, and even had to make up stuff himself because uh 
he really really had no money and that, and the, the 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 thing about that film that goes into so many different directions especially the animation is that he ran out of money to shoot it so he had to animate it and because he didn't have any money to pay an animator he had to learn animation himself so that he could animate those scenes so i mean that film is just the amount of work that went into it and, and just the 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 unique uh, the uniqueness of it is is unmatched i think uh that like like john was saying it has every single it has like your sort of the sex thing and it has like horror vibes and it has you know it's got so many different genres and so many different styles of filmmaking it's uh it's it's totally amazing and also like many other third window films is uh is uh, still unknown yes it was a, deb- yeah, it was a debut a as well wasn't yeah. it it's it been nothing else since then because it yeah. bombed bombed in Japan, uh, and uh, yeah, it's it's yeah. It will, I think Japan. A lot of those films, like Suffering of Dinko, um, maybe even like Kuzuma's Alignment itself. Many actually, many like, like many third window films, films that are popular overseas. Uh, and actually, if we bring it back to Lone Wolf and Cub compared to Zatoichi, the Lone Wolf, films that are popular overseas don't aren't popular in Japan. Uh, I mean, it's very rare. There's only a few instances, you know, and maybe. Uh, Things like one one cut of the dead or something that have managed to break both, but in most cases, if a film somehow works well overseas, it just doesn't seem to work with Japanese audiences. And um, Suffering of Ninko worked really well with at film festivals actually, and it was distributed by in France, uh, in the UK, in America, in a lot of different places. It just it was distributed, it just wasn't very well sold. Um, but in Japan, it just bombed. It just didn't work with the, with a Japanese audience. And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, like Satoichi, the films that I don't like, or a lot of film, Maybe I think more people like in the West like the Long Wolf and Cub because of their uh, uh, over the top aspect, and, and the Japanese prefer the Satoichi because they're they're a little more uh, family friendly and such. And uh, yeah, it's, it's 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 a strange thing because you know a good film should work in most places, but um, mm. in many instances uh, it doesn't uh, doesn't seem to work in Japan if it works overseas. Hmm. Yeah, you're right, Adam. There's a there's a few cases of that happening, but not always. This this reminds me again of when we where we started when I was mentioning for Digital Asia, one of the first big hits that uh, Andrew said he had working for that company for Digital Media was releasing the Death Note live action films. <laughs> They're still the only way you can get those films in the UK now is through what what few discs of of those are floating around, um, but they have been on on film four a few times as well. So I think they still own the TV rights maybe. Um, but I think he, he told me he tried that again with 20th Century Boys, which was another adaptation. This is a film trilogy, an adaptation of really popular manga and anime series in Japan. Um, but uh, no one had heard of that in the West, almost no one uh, compared to Death Note, um, which is still you know, a massive, really popular franchise. It wasn't that long ago Netflix tried to remake it. Um, not very well, I don't yeah. think. But um, yeah, it's still really well known around the world. I just saw another advert today online that, that's saying they're reprinting the manga again. But it's just sad that it didn't work out for him for Death Note. But uh, you have to wonder why, because I've seen those films. They really do work. Do um, they? Do they? I don't know. I, 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 I enjoyed the 20th Century Boys films. Oh, dude, I, I did. Shit. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. All right. The minority. <laughs> It's, subject, it's your... subjective, Adam. Right? In your opinion, yeah, yeah, you're, you're you're right. In my opinion, that's shit. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Were I... you a fan of the, the the manga at all beforehand, or no? I I don't read read manga to be honest. Uh, no, I've, I never. I don't like anime, and I don't don't read manga. So um, I just fair try enough. to watch them as films, and I thought they were fucking yeah. shit studio studio films, of which there <laughs> there are a lot of those sort of shit studio films in Japan, and uh, 
and they don't work overseas. Uh, and I understand, and I, I, you know, I'm Andrew. Yeah, he, I remember he was telling me how stressful it was to uh, release those films at the time because we were speaking a lot then, and uh, and I'm not surprised that they didn't do well compared, obviously, mm. to how much they would have would have been to to acquire them. But um, yeah, but I think most of my my own catalog are films that haven't been popular in Japan. Um, yeah, but but yeah, I, I think. I would I wouldn't go after those those studio films in Japan because they they they're just a bit a bit shit. But you obviously yeah. you 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 don't you like. You <laughs> well, like I, I like I like some of them, not <laughs> uh, not all of them. I mean, some of the live action anime remakes have been popping up on Netflix over here, and some are absolute rubbish. Like I tried the Full Metal Alchemist one, and I thought <laughs> that was awful. Um, uh, and they, yeah, and Netflix keeps saying, "Oh, we've got the sequels coming out on Netflix." And I'm like, eh, "Do I really want to try those?" Mm. I did enjoy because because you know it's quite clear with writing a book on Zatoichi. You know, I'm a fan of Shambara. I have to say, I did enjoy the Ruroni Kenshin films. Sorry to say that. Sorry if that's it. Uh, I, 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 they they I know. They right. I haven't seen them yet, but I know a lot of people that really do like them. Yeah. Yeah, they're they're worth a watch. They're a good binge as well. There's five of those I think on Netflix now, Ben. Just mm. to set another binge for you. There. I will. I'll I don't, they get a bit crap. I watched the last the last two to be honest, and they were a bit melodramatic uh, uh, for, for me. Yeah, I liked the fourth one. The fifth one, not so much. Uh, I thought the 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 fourth one. I was impressed with the action scenes. The the fifth one, though though the fifth one is the bloodier one. Um, there was it was. You're quite right, Adam. It was very heavy on the melodrama. Mm. I think just bringing it back quickly to Suffering and Ninko, like I don't know what the budget was for this film. I don't know even if you know Adam, would you? It was it was a hundred thousand um, dollars. Right. Yeah. When you when you see what he did with that money, I don't know why someone wouldn't give him a second film. And I get why because it flopped. Yeah. But like it's this thing about Netflix mm. in particular, where you know why aren't they giving one director two hundred million when you could give I don't know two hundred directors one million. Or even four hundred directors, five hundred thousand, and you could have so much original content from so many different voices. Um, and someone like Niwatsukino would be able to, you know, explore that more. Well, no, I heard well, he apparently did have a lot of uh, people coming to him uh, uh, in the same way that, like Ken and Kazu, uh, the director, also after um, after that had a lot of people who were interested in working with him, but I think he just didn't want to work with the people that, that were, were giving him projects as well. Um, so that might might also be one thing. But um, but then again, Ken and Kazu was a massive hit in, in Japan and uh, yeah, Suffering Ninko really bombed. So maybe after it bombed, he, he, yeah, he didn't get as many offers as, 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 he, as he did prior. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear again what uh, happened with with Ken and Keizu because um, yeah, it was sad that that release didn't go forward for you, Adam. But I, I've count myself really lucky. I managed to see it in Deptford Cinema. I think that was the only screening you you had in the UK of it at Deptford Cinema. It, I mean, it played at um, Raindance, I believe. Uh, oh, was it? Okay. Yeah, it played at some festivals um, and Edinburgh. Uh, but yeah, yeah, the only screening was probably Deptford, um, and it's annoying because yeah, the, the Blu-ray is mastered and it has been certified by the BBFC. But uh, I don't know. Maybe if um, in the future, I know the director has just finished another film. Finally, um, it took him about seven years to make as, as Ken and Kazu did prior. But um, maybe that his new film will be something uh, a little less stressful for him and and uh, the. Uh, Seisaku Inkai that, that he mm. unwillingly came into. But it's, yeah, it's a pity because it's a very talented uh, young director. 
Yeah, Fingers always, crossed for the future. I don't know if you guys ever played that thing, you know, what would you do if you won the lottery? My answer was always, <laughs> I'd produce films. <laughs> I'd just go out and just get films made, I think, because, yeah, there must be so many out there that just, just can't get off the ground. All right, let's end on a high then um, and go to one of our, uh, I'm assuming with you, John, but I'm, I'm sure it's probably the case. Uh, one of our favorite directors is Shinya Tsukamoto um, yeah. and his 2018 film, Killing. This this one's a really special one for me because it was actually, and this, and this is weird to say it, but this was actually my first Tsukamoto. So wow. when Adam released it, I, I, I'd always avoided um, the Tetsuo films. I don't know why. But um, yeah, when Adam released this, it, I was a complete newbie to Tsukamoto and I really enjoyed it as kind of like a Ronin story. Um, I just thought it was really cool. And then I spent the next few years kind of educating myself on everything Tsukamoto had put out. And luckily, because Adam had released most of them, uh, that was quite easy. And then I revisited Killing at the end of all that and just realized, you know, or, you know, saw what a masterpiece it actually is. I just think this film is is flawless. Like the quiet moments are beautiful and haunting, but the brutal moments are just like so intense. It kind of hurts to watch it. Um yeah. And obviously every Sukumoto film is like a, like a visceral experience, but when you're making it a story as brutal and violent as this, um, yeah, it's, it's just astonishing. But yes, I don't know if you guys <laughs> have any other thoughts on it. Um, well, yeah, uh, yeah, lots, lots of thoughts there. It's really interesting that you say it was your first Sukumoto one. I came from it at the other end of it. I, um, you know, getting into films uh, uh, through the Tartan Asia boom. Um, you know, I came to, I'm pr pretty sure with Sukumoto, it was Tetsuo 1 and 2 mm. that were my first films. Um, still got very soft spots for them, but now I've seen a lot more of his films, again, mainly through the thanks to to Adam. And I know that some of uh, his other films had been released through Tartan beforehand. Um uh, uh as well i would say now and it's not just because it's a third window film i have re revisited a little bit of his back catalogue recently i think um still um uh oh this is annoying <laughs> why why am i forgetting the name all of a sudden it is my favorite of his it's just my i've gone blank sorry snake i was of refreshing june. myself uh, no, uh snake of june is brilliant um sorry Kotoko. Yes, I don't know why my mind yeah. blank there on Kotoko. Thank you, Adam. Yes, um, I absolutely love Kotoko and Oof. all his other films. And um, we, we're killing as well. I rewatched that recently just before this uh, podcast. And it was interesting. I think the first time I released that, you, you brought Killing Out, Adam. It was a couple of years ago now, two, three years ago. That Blu ray release. Maybe three, four years ago. It was, good. It was quite, yeah. quite a while now. I maybe. Think. Yeah. I think Adam and I so just maybe started I was, talking. Yeah, so about three years ago. Yeah. So I think I was in the midst of writing a lot of the material for the book. So I was very familiar with what had been written about in terms of Shambhala films, the history, Jidai Geki and that. And that's why it was really interesting then watching Sukumoto's Killing when it came out when it did, um, especially through your release, because I could see that he was put, even though he's working again, he's doing what Sukumoto does, still working on a very low budget, doing his own special effects, keeping this as minimal as much as possible. He's playing with a lot of Shambara conventions. I thought it was really interesting to see. And yeah, absolutely love that. You know, it's 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 always hard to pick a favorite with Sukumoto. I think my personal one is still is still Kotoko. Um, but there's so many great films that he's made in just in general. I, I've only sat through Kotoko twice, 
because the first time it hurt so much and the second time I was like, I'll need to rewatch it and it hurt just as much the second time. I just thought, I don't think I can watch this one again. <laughs> it's too painful. I'm surprised you made it twice. I, I've only watched it the first time that I saw it in the cinema with uh, in, in Japan and I've, I have, it's too too much for me to watch that film again as much as I think it's it's one of his best and uh, uh, I just, I can't watch that film again. It's, it's And I know... Uh, there were some other distributors. I mean, I mentioned this in the past, like uh, Rapid Eye Movies, that that just couldn't release that film because it was too much uh, for them. Uh, as the as Stefan Hall, because or, or, as a father, he said he couldn't release it. But I think it's a phenomenal film. But it's, it's like some films, like I know Irreversible and all those sort of things. You can only really watch once. Uh, yeah, they stick with you forever. You only really need to watch them once, and it just sticks with you. Uh, it's uh, too, such a powerful film. I think it's most powerful film, to be honest. Um, uh, it's maybe some others might be his best, but uh, it's his most powerful without a doubt. I love how he puts himself in all his films as well, though. And it doesn't seem like a vanity thing. He's just genuinely an astonishing performer and he can do things to himself in front of camera that he probably wouldn't be comfortable asking other people to do, you know? Um I find that fascinating. Although ironically, I think one of my favorites, because I think Gemini is a masterpiece as well, but one of my favorites is one that Adam hasn't released yet, but I think you might be, or hopefully in the process of doing it, Adam, and that's vital. That's my favorite, actually, uh, despite the fact that I haven't released it. Uh, I, have you seen that one yet, John? Uh, I, I have seen vital. I do enjoy it. I, I think it's very good. You know, it's always hard to nail down what's the best, but uh, my, my personal gut instinct always goes to um always goes to kotoko yeah. when i when i think of his best ones i've still got a soft spot for tetsuo one and two that i saw uh when i was much younger and yeah i've heard loads of people like yourselves included heap praise on snake of june i think that is a wonderful film that looks gorgeous but i, I don't know what it is maybe it's just me maybe there's something a bit sick and twisted about me because i've <laughs> seen to watch this more times than the both of you but i think kotoko is 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 one of his best for me yeah Maybe no, you don't have kids, that's why. I'm just about to say that. Maybe <laughs> we both got kids. Uh, not, uh, not yet. Not that I, I don't have anything against children. And we definitely, me and Christina definitely want kids in the future. It just hasn't happened yet. Um, I'm not sure why. Um, but it could be It could be part of the reason. I, I know she hasn't watched it. I, it's not her sort of thing. So I wouldn't. I wouldn't make her watch it, that's for sure. <laughs> I definitely, I, my, my daughter was about three months old, I think, when I first watched it, and I thought, yeah, this, oh, is, God. this is too yeah. much. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, is there any more news with Vital at all, Adam? Are you, are you still in process? or? I mean, I think the rights are about to expire, or they will expire. Um, the Tartan rights that uh, are the same issues that uh i mean you know going back to tartan john you know a lot of the, them them buying maybe we didn't talk about this much in the past but they used to buy 20 year rights to films mm. and uh i'm surprised any japanese gave it to them but i think they just paid a lot of money uh up front um or they 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 said they'd pay it i don't know i think a lot of the reasons why they went under is they didn't pay a lot of stuff but um i think uh they they closed on a, a lot of films like there are including films like uh, 2LDK um and uh, and Vital and, and many others that the rights are still sort of with them even though they're 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 not around as a company and uh, Vital was was the one that like yeah I, I really wanted to release and uh unfortunately Tartan still held the rights and uh, I think it's for another year or two um and now I feel sort of you know because I was the first person to to remaster and and re-release all of his films 
now everyone else has already released Vital. I sort of don't want to release it because mm. like it's all of, it's available here and there, and uh, it doesn't seem so fun for me uh, to to um, release a title that it's already been out there uh, by so many other companies. That's fair, I guess. I think it's just because you've done so much with Sukamoto. It'd be lovely to see you work with him again. Is yeah. there is there any news of? I think you mentioned it in a previous podcast. You you think he might be getting some funding or resources together for another film? Have you heard any more about that? Tsukamoto's working on another film for sure. Um, and I think even he wrote as such on Twitter or something of late. Um, I mean, funding is is all about his own money. I mean, I don't think he yeah. likes to um get funding of of others because uh, it uh, he doesn't want people to to tell him anything. Mm, um, yeah. but, but, but last time I checked it, he was, you know, before COVID or just, he was working on, on something and I think COVID messed up a lot of things and, uh, yeah. and now it's sort of got a kicking back started. So, um, I wouldn't be surprised if there was another film out next year by him, uh, considering he's already working on it. I thought for sure he'd do like Haze 2 or something, uh, during COVID. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Uh, fingers fingers crossed, yeah, that he, he we see him come out with another film soon. That would be great to see. Absolutely. Well, I mean, that that's all we really had on the agenda, John. Uh, it's been an absolute blast talking to you. I really appreciate you coming on. Um, yeah, thank, uh, thanks for having me. There's the I didn't know how much you wanted me to talk your ear, uh, <laughs> ears around with, with Zatoichi, but hopefully it's got people... I'm interested in the book. There is still a discount code available that my publishers made available for the whole year if anyone's interested. Uh, gives you 30% off the price because unfortunately this is a big expensive academic book. They don't uh, they aren't published cheap by academic publishers, but the PDF uh, the ebook is is a lot cheaper. So there's a 30% discount code um, that I can share with you after this. That'd be great. Um, yeah, I'll put that in the, in the description. Yeah, they've, they've allowed that to be active for the whole year because it's the 60th anniversary of Zatoichi this year. There's there, uh, I wrote about a lot more than this because there's lots of other unofficial Zatoichi films around the world and homages. Um, but there's 29 Japanese films, uh, Zatoichi, yeah, 29 Japanese Zatoichi films to date, you know, makes him you know, arguably as prominent as another famous Japanese pop culture figure. I think there's still only 29 Japanese Godzilla films, <laughs> right. I think, have been made. So, you know, uh, although Godzilla got started earlier and he's arguably more popular around the world. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the book covers, you know, how how big uh, a pop culture impact he's he's had around the world, as we've touched on with a few titles, especially Top Knot Detective. I was really glad I could I could mention that in the book. Um, thanks again, Adam. You emailed me a high-res image to use in the book. I think, unfortunately, my publisher said we've got too many images and we had to cut them. It's always the way this goes. It's out of my hands. Um, and I try. I always try to get my academic research published as quick as possible. And it's great. It can be of some help, but sometimes it's not out there as quickly as, a, as other things I've sometimes been involved in the past with reviews. Uh, I forgot to mention earlier a uh, couple of a uh, few years ago now I was managing to, I was lucky enough to write some reviews for Neo magazine trying to fly the flag for third window there I think I really uh, that was around the time you were releasing the Kitano films ah. taking us back to when we uh, where we started nice. I got to review some of those for Neo I was making sure yeah yes five star film go buy it <laughs> <laughs> amazing we have uh, a good friend of mine Daryl over the sudden double deep podcast he's got the Zatoichi box set which I'm not sure exactly what's in. Is it was that from Arrow? Um, 
Oh, it's the Criterion. The Criterion. Box it's the only one that I'm aware of. That's that's Katsu's first 25 films right. as Zatoichi, which was made in an insane amount of time. He was making those from 1962 to 73. Um, so 25 films. And those weren't the only, you know, Dai contract films he was making. He did the Wicked Priest series at the time, which Adam has mentioned towards the end of his career. He's also did those three Hanzo Razor films. Um, it's just making an insane uh, amount of films in this time as so many other stars were that's how they worked wow it's crazy well my plan is to to very nicely ask him to to borrow that box set and i'll i'll be reading your book alongside the binge as well for sure um there's a there's a little book in there as well you have a lot of reading and you'll get the original short story that the character came from um katsu is the most famous actor known for bringing him to screen, but before the character did exist in 1948 as a short story published by Kan Shimozawa. So you get, if you, if you do manage to ask your friend nicely and you get the whole thing to you, you can read through that as well oh, and see how he started. I'm sure he will. He's a fan of the podcast. So this is me officially Excellent. asking you, Daryl, please. <laughs> um, look, if, you, if you're a fan of uh, Adam and what he does, or you listen to the podcast and you're not following Jonathan on Twitter, then you're missing a trick because yeah, he's just as delightful and um, interesting and educational as he's been on this show. So give him a follow over at JL Root. That's Root spelt with a W at the beginning. <laughs> um, yeah. Adam, what have we got coming up? We've got the Obayashi box set just around the corner, haven't we? Yes, uh, the Obayashi set is out uh, October the 17th. Uh, pre-order is through Terracotta, uh, as usual. And um, it's uh, a ex- very, very nice set of four films that have never been released outside of Japan before, I believe. Uh, I was trying to think. I mean, know they're the first Blu-ray release, but I don't think they've been released in any format uh, 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 with the exception of some festivals, so yeah, it's and it's nice booklet and uh, very nice digipack and uh, very expensive uh, and beautiful release. Uh, so Mate, it's yeah, I'm so excited for this one. Um, I spoke to Joey the other day and he said it's the most pre-ordered disc he has on store all year. Um, oh really? Because the the price he gives is so good. I think the recommended mm. retail is around seventy nine ninety nine, isn't it, Adam? And I think over there he's got it for about fifty three pounds. Uh, as an early bird special, oh, 50, fifty-seven. Sorry, yeah. Um, and yet, it, even at that discounted price, Adam will still get more from that than if someone buys it on Amazon or something like that, isn't it? For sure, for sure, uh, and that's why I, I let him have the, the cheapest price out there because uh, you know it's it's but helps him and helps me in the long run in both. So, uh, but it is a very expensive release. I think mm-hmm. we're talking like up close to thirty thousand uh, pounds. I mean, if, if to, to put that out, I mean, if you think about that sort of money, it's an insane amount of money. So hopefully it does sell well. And, and yeah, the, if, if people uh, are interested, please uh, pick it up. And then afterwards, I'm trying to put actually a Drift in Tokyo out on Blu-ray later this year, oh. finally, as uh, because I know a lot of people have been wanting to see the DVD. The DVD is long out of print and it's... Uh, I managed to get in touch with a production company and they had a 24 frames uh, HD master lying around. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to sort it out, uh, hopefully this week and, uh, hopefully get it out by the end of the year. If it, if all things work. Wow. That would be so cool. That'd be great indeed. Yeah. I saw Ben rewatching some, uh, Mickey Satoshi titles and, um, yeah, it made me realize it's been years since I've watched those, those third window ones. I've got those on my shelf and, um, yeah, seeing, seeing, um, uh, a drift in Tokyo remastered would be great, and also um, Andrew Kirkham again 
I saw him mention on uh, Facebook, I think it was, one of uh, Mickey's latest um, uh, latest films in Japan looks really interesting. Like uh, I think it's called What Do We Do With The Dead Kaiju? That looks hilarious. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not good, honestly. I was going to say, oh, <laughs> I've seen very mixed reviews. It sounds awesome, oh, and I love the director, yeah. and then I saw the responses, I was like, oh, God. Oh, it's, it's a shame. It's, Maybe it's, not it's, then. Yeah, I think it had to do with the COVID as well. I think um, they couldn't finish it in time because when I was trying to look at it for, for film festival programming, it was like the Japanese release date is like in two weeks and it's like not finished yet. Uh, you know, there that, that was that sort oh. of really last minute. And if you watch it, uh, it's a bit of a mess. Um, it sounds better on paper than, than actually uh, does, unfortunately. I mean, even to a point where actually the producers uh, came out and apologized uh, for the films <laughs> <laughs> because oh it, 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 it bombed in Japan as well. So... Um, yeah, it's it's. I, I'd say it's it's better to not watch it uh, in case you it changes your opinion of of uh, Miki Satoshi or. Uh, I'll, I'll maybe just stick with the uh, the Heisei era Gamera films. I got the Arrow box set of those those nineties films and the two thousand and six one. I enjoyed watching all those special features and how they made that. Maybe I'll stick with that. Yeah, I'm <laughs> sure that's a much better better better. better. <laughs> well, I hope that that film bombing doesn't stop Miki from making more films. And yeah, it'd be great to see more from him. I mean, he yeah. made another film after called Convenience oh. Story, which uh, was uh, Mark Schilling uh, inspired. Um, I uh, sorry, I'm not I'm not that big of a fan of it, but it, it's 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 uh it did get some good reviews when I played a Fantasia and I'm sure it'll play at lots of film festivals and maybe in, in the UK soon. Yeah, I saw Mark Schilling posting about that and I saw he'd published his short story in English. So uh, it was very cheap as well. I think it was only a couple of quid um to buy up the digital copy. It was it was an intriguing story. I'd I would be interested if the opportunity arises to see how that got put on screen. Awesome. Well, yeah, I just made me realise how far my finger is from the pulse of all this because it's all news to me. But uh, awesome. Well, yeah, thanks again, Jonathan. It really has been a blast, and you know, you're welcome back on any time to talk about oh, Satoichi or not. Thank you again for having me. That depends if you want to talk about Zatoichi, but I, I could um, talk about other films if there is reason. I mean, um, I'm, I'm jealous of, of uh, again, seeing what you've been doing on bet, uh, on Twitter recently, Ben, going through the, back through the third window catalogue. I'm like, I need to make time to do that. Yeah. I've got them all on my shelf. It's been a while. So yeah. Yeah, there's, such, there's such great films in there. Thank you again, Adam, for the work that you've done so far. I'll do what I can. <laughs> he doesn't take compliments well, does Adam? And my my order's already in for the Obayashi box set. I'm ah, I'm looking forward to that. Thank you very much. It's a lot of work going into that, so I hope you you enjoy it. I need to get a wiggle on. I'm only halfway. I've I've checked um, the island closest to heaven and the girl who let free time, and both of those are 100. percent um, So yeah, got a couple more. Please do it this week. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do it after this. Okay. <laughs> Just got to look after my kid and keep a full time job. But yeah, I'll do I know. It. I know. <laughs> Um, great. Well, look, if you're not following Adam yet, he's at Third Window on Twitter and he's Third Window Films on Facebook, uh, Instagram, YouTube, everywhere, all over the place. Um, and I'm Benji Box on Twitter and Letterbox. That's Benji Box spelt with a Y. Great. Well, thanks again for listening and we will catch you next time on the Third Window Films podcast. Two flights up by the third Window from the right Two flights up By the third Window from the right The third window from the right Two flights up 
That's the one with the shade pulled down. That's the 